So this morning I'm talking about families and love, and I got to tell you, this week it made uh, made my own heart swell. You know that that country music song, "I'm proud to be an American," where at least I know I'm free. It, it, that's like the worst grammatical song ever, by the way. An adjective cannot be a location. You know, so I'm proud to be an American, so at least I know I'm free. Or I'm proud to be in America, where at least I know I'm free. But it cannot be an American where I know I'm free. Got it? Adjective does not equal location. Grammar lesson ended. But this past week really did make my heart swell. And I have to tell you this morning, I am really proud to be an American. Now, don't do me like they tried to do Michelle Obama. I am often, often proud to be an American. Many of you know by now about the California Supreme Court ruling that legalized same-sex marriage. See, and I love the reasoning in it because it didn't generate or create any new rights as some would talk about. What it did very simply is it said this. This was the logical reasoning. If the state was going to grant marriage rights to straight couples, it had to grant them to same-sex couples as well. If it was going to do it for one class of people, it had to do it for another class of people as well. Now, there's a lot of talk right now about, you know, so-called activist judges. Brown versus the board of Topeka, you know, education, 1954, desegregation. The Mildred Loving case, 1967, Virginia, which up until that point in the state, interracial couples were banned, were legal. By the way, when both those court cases were rendered, vast majorities of the American public said that neither of those things should be. People from different races shouldn't be able to get married, and people should keep their kids segregated by race when they went to school. And so I say this morning, thank God that the courts have the capacity to apply equal laws equally, to apply equal laws equally. Now, as with many things, the blogger Andrew Sullivan sums up my own thoughts, and he does it so, so beautifully. And for any of you who don't know who Andrew Sullivan is, he himself is a gay man. He's also a conservative at the same time. You know, no person is just one thing. But this is what he writes this past week. People can talk about activist liberal judges all they want. But the simple truth is that what has changed these past 20 years is not the nature of judges, but our collective understanding of what sexual orientation really is. Behind all of this is a deep, deep shift in our consciousness from thinking of gay people as defective straight people who perform certain sexual acts to their being the moral equivalent of heterosexual people capable of forming relationships and building families as well as anyone. This is at the core of the so-called generational divide. Not that young people are any more liberal or progressive than their parents. It is simply that the next generation has grown up with a different definition of who gay people are. They see gay and lesbian people as interchangeable with straight people. They don't think that we're inferior to them because they know us. For me, that is directly in line with Dr. King's great hope and trust in our American creed, that we can expand in a moral and legal way who belongs to the us, not on the basis of difference, as some radicals would say, not on the basis of difference, but on the basis 
of our likeness as human beings. And it's great to see that for all our problems in this land, and there, as we all know, are many, 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 we are still equipped to enlarge the circle of hope. And I thought this week of an acquaintance of mine from a few years back, who I wouldn't call in any way particularly progressive. He's a straight, married, white guy with kids, and he once said to me, absolutely, I want gay and lesbian people to have the right to marry. They should absolutely have the right to be as miserable as I am. (laughs) Now, now, all joking aside, I conclude the message series this morning, not about families being miserable, but about families who learn how to thrive together and grow spiritually in all the days that they share. And this morning I'm going to conclude with talking about the family practice of loving. For it is in family more than any other place, more than work, certainly, more than friendship, and even more than here in church, in religious community, in spiritual community. It is in family that we first and foremost, and throughout our lives, many of us, we experience the most intimate school that there is for our souls for the expansion of who we are and the growth of our understanding of what it really means to be a full human being and to be alive. Now, a lot of my thoughts on love were formed a number of years ago when I read a book that I cannot recommend highly enough. Any of you know the name Eric Fromm? He was real popular 40, 50, 60 years ago. Wrote a great book called The Art of Loving. And in it, it's not the easiest read in the world, but it's managed to stay around for these years because what Fromm put his finger on, a little academically, What Fromm put his finger on is that we have many misunderstandings about what love really, really is. Several core confusions that he identified. And he said central to that is the confusion between the initial experience of falling in love and the permanent state of being in love. Or as we might say even better, standing in love. Standing in love, walking in love. See, what Fromm wanted to do when he was right in doing this is he took love out of the purely sentimental, emotional kind of ways that we talk about love and the ways that, frankly, I talk about love a lot. And he wanted to introduce it to say, first, of course, we feel love as an emotion. Then we reflect on it as a thought, but he returned it back to an art, to a practice. He says there is an art in loving. It is not just something we have. It is not something we fall into most profoundly, but it is about standing in love and walking in love forward with each other and with our families through time. And for most of us, we walk most of our days in love with our experience of family. This message series has been about how. It has been about the methods of how strong spiritual identities are built within family life. But there was a challenge I had today because in some ways the practices, the specific practices of love are less tangible than the things I've been sharing with you the last couple weeks. Because first and foremost, loving involves your attitude. And that is not something that is fundamentally a practice. It is a disposition of your soul. And so I encourage you, and I continue to encourage you, as I encouraged the last couple weeks, take a family night together. Remember to be silent together. Remember to pray or hold silence before meals or bedtimes. Take the time to reflect on the time that you share so that it is not just fleeting, but you are filling it, filling it with your very selves. Make the commitment to share what you have as a family so that your family is able to grow. But the one thing that love requires before anything else is this. It requires willingness. It requires an attitude, a disposition. 
It is kind of like the ways that I've talked about spiritual practice. I could give you, and from time to time I do, heaps of research and information about what contemplative practices from throughout the world's traditions can do for you. And some of you know this already in terms of lowering your blood pressure and your heart rate and the experience of peace and the ability to settle in and the ability to live life beyond narrow ego and beyond fear. I can share all that with you and I encourage you to do that. But you know what? None of it matters unless we are willing to practice together. It's like a book that I saw a title of some years ago. The answer to how, you know what the answer to how is? The answer to how is yes. The answer to how is yes. So loving families, you know, they're equipped with many things, but some of the things I've observed over the years could be sort of summed up in three short three-word phrases that say yes. I love you. Kind of a basic one. Kind of a basic one. I am sorry. You've heard me say it before. It's one of my favorite lines. I'm going to repeat it right now. Love story was absolutely wrong. Love doesn't mean never having to say you're sorry. And love doesn't mean you have to say you're sorry. Love means we have the privilege of getting to say that we are sorry and returning to life with each other. And I think the final one is also important. Three little words. I don't know. Say it with me. I don't know. See, because that leads to an even deeper one, sort of a corollary to my three short phrases. I don't know, but I will help. I don't know, but I will help you. See, because the practice of love and family life rests on a paradox. It is part revelation, part sharing who we are with each other, and it is also very much part concealment knowing that we cannot share everything all the time, and we're not even supposed to. So the bigger part of family life is about the acceptance of the mystery of each other. And if we can accept that, accept the mystery of our spouses, accept the mystery of our parents, accept the mystery of our children and our extended families, with that acceptance comes trust, which is really just the emotional version of what we call faith. See, that's part of my charge to couples when I perform their weddings and their services of union. And by the way, I hope in a few short years I can just say all I perform are weddings because California will upset the bar where it should be for all of us. But I ask them this question before they say their vows. I ask them this very question, trusting in what you now know and accepting what you cannot yet know. Are you now ready to be married? Accepting what you cannot yet know. See, in their answer, whether they realize it or not, and part of my job is to make sure that they have just a small inkling of the fact that they realize it, lies an affirmation of the unavoidable risk that lies at the heart of love, at the center of our family experience, is taking, as Walt Whitman called it, the open road of the soul, choosing to take that open road. And by the way, Walt Whitman, who gave us our mission to me as America's most profound thinker and poet, he did not say, take the safe road. He did not say, take the sure road or the certain road or the secure road. He said the open road. And he chose that really intentionally. The risk, this risk in love is a necessary balance for our tendency to say, if only we knew more. Only we investigated more. Only we knew something more fully, the exact nature of the thing. Then we could make the right decision. A couple years ago, excuse me, a couple weeks ago in my message, I used some of those ancient Greek pieces of wisdom. Know thyself. Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. 
These are essential things in family life. Raise up the opportunity so to have you, you have the opportunity to truly get to know each other. But also remember what Socrates said with his dying words. Any of you recall this? Socrates, who dedicated his entire life to the study and practice of wisdom and sharing it with his family of choice, his philosophical school. You know what he said about himself as he was about to die? I am the most ignorant man in Athens. For all that he knew, he knew what he did not know. For all that he knew, he knew what he did not know. Talking with someone this past week, found a really funny example of where love and ignorance come together. Now, this person called it the ice cream counter moment. It is when your mate orders something when you're standing at the ice cream counter or someone in your family orders something when you're standing at the ice cream counter that just absolutely astounds you. What the hell do you mean you just ordered marshmallow fluff with with toffee, butternut, pecan? Who are you? Who are you? I don't know you at all. Are you an alien? Well, it's a funny example of those times when the veil is lifted up and we recognize how much more there is to know about each other when we share our lives intimately. Of course, the stakes are higher than they just are at the ice cream counter. Sometimes when we appear as strange or as a stranger to each other. And because of this, loving in families is so important. Because love often goes where knowledge has not yet been or knowledge cannot ever go. Courage is required. I think at the base of all of the virtues and what we call the virtues, the dispositions of character and habit that make us good in life, that courage stands at the very heart of them and is necessary for love to be love. See, because courage is our very healthy response to fear. And fear is our reaction to what we don't know And rarely are we more fearful, and I will even say rarely am I more fearful when it comes in our emotional lives. When we encounter someone or something that we expect something from and we find out that it is just plain strange from time to time and we don't know what's going on. Part of this, and those of you who are parents, you really know this. Part of this, and I know you cultivate it, it is the courage to let go. It is the courage to let go of your children When they, step by step, I know it doesn't happen all at once, need to move beyond you into the life beyond you so that they can become who are they to be. Sometimes it's the first day of school, and sometimes when you get a call late at night that says, you know what, your child is really screwed up. The courage to let go is an essential part of loving and the practice of parenting. And then there is also the courage to go forward walking alongside each other in family life when the future is uncertain and at those moments when we are clueless as to why someone we love is doing something. There's a modern fable that came out last year. It's called Lars and the Real Girl. Any of you seen it? Lars and the Real Girl. It is a beautiful movie. I'm going to show you a section of it in just just a second. Now, it sounds like it's going to be real dirty, filthy stuff. It's not. It's very chaste. It's very warm. It's very small town family values kind of thing. But it's about this guy named Lars, who for one reason or another, we get little inklings of it, is a very decent person, but is emotionally not quite all there. Very shy, very introverted. And Lars one day tells his family, who's very excited, we're about to see his brother and his sister-in-law talking to a doctor about what the hell are they going to do in this situation. Because one day Lars says, I have have someone coming to visit me. She's my girlfriend. 
And that person is a life-size sex doll. And this is what ensues. Everyone's going to laugh at him and also at you. That's what the family doctor, part-time shrink, says to Lars's brother and sister-in-law. And he says, no, 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 can't do it. I'm not going to play into his delusion. And of course he is deluded. That's why this is a fable. Then the sister-in-law says, whatever it takes. She knows that the answer to how is yes. And the answer to how is yes is love. Because love is so necessary in family life because of that tension. Because we know so much of each other and yet we know so little. See, maybe you've been part of one of these families. Maybe you grew up in one of these families. That's what I like to call a version of the Edward Albee play, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? You know, where everyone knows each other's secrets, but there's no love whatsoever. See, where there is only knowledge and not love, all of our soft spots are turned into hard targets for other people scoring points at the expense of our weakness. Where there is only knowledge and not love, we can get hurt and deeply. It's important to remember what the Christian scriptures counsel us, that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge can puff up, but love builds up. See, love tempers the other side of knowledge, which can sometimes be arrogance. And love especially builds us up with those moments when knowledge escapes us. I'm reading right now the most extraordinary novel, and I was told to take my time with it, so I'm only about 20 pages into it. It's by Marilyn Robinson. It's called Gilead. I don't know if any of you have read it. It won the Pulitzer Prize back in 2004. It is extraordinary. And there's not much going on in it, I have to tell you. It is the recording, the recording of the dying benediction of Reverend John Ames, who's sort of an old-school preacher, talking throughout the book to his young son who is going to leave behind. And he has this remarkable passage. Well, see and see, but do not perceive. Hear and hear, but do not understand, as the Lord says. I can't claim to understand that saying as many times as I've heard it and as many times as I've preached on it. You can know a thing to death and be for all purposes completely ignorant of it. A man can know his father or his son and there still might be nothing between them but loyalty and love and still mutual incomprehension. This passage brought to mind a time in my life when I had just something, done something really stupid. I was a freshman in college and I had done something that was, to be honest, self-injurious. And I got to say, when my parents got the call in the middle of the night from a friend of mine that said, eh, you know, he's in a little bit of trouble here. My mom, with whom I had really the primary emotional connection, she didn't turn her back on me, but she could not understand why I would do something so dumb. And so my father took the flight out from Pennsylvania to the Midwest, and he, in a way that surprised me, was tabbed for the emotionally heavy lifting. And I think it's because he knew what it was like in his young life to be a little wayward as well. And so he and I sat and we talked for just about a day and a half in the hotel where he was staying. And it was an experience of my father that I had never really had before. And at the end of that day and a half, when he really honestly asked me what was going on, what was up with my life, we were sitting in silence that day, that afternoon. And there had been, and I don't know why, I have no idea why to this day I asked this question, but there had been this idea, this family myth, that my dad had been called into service 
drafted into service just before the Korean War between the World War II and the Korean War itself, but had never seen service, was stateside, never saw battle. And I don't know, something in me never just quite bought that, but I had no idea how to bring it up. So we were in this place of this revelation between us and my dad caring for me and lovingly in a way I'd never experienced and also holding me accountable. And I asked him, Dad, were you really held out of service in the Korean War? And he turned his face away from me. And he said, no. And I wasn't sure what to answer next. Or what to ask next. I said, did you, did you, did you see friends of yours die? It's probably the closest I could get to the reality of it when I was 18 years old. And he said, yes. And he turned his face away even more from me. Because I think, I think, I don't know. I think I don't know from what I've learned in the years since that in war, very good people, very good young men can witness things and can be forced to do things that violate every notion of what is fair and right and good in this world. See, there is now a mystery between my father and myself. That is not mine to answer. I've lived a privileged life. I have not had to see what clearly he has seen. But in that mystery, what opened up between us was also a space of much deeper love. Because I knew my dad in a way that I had not yet known him. Not that I knew the facts, but I knew a deeper part of his story. And I loved him for it. For his ability to share with me just a little bit what was so incredibly painful for him. And I know it was painful to this day. I hope my dad gets healing, but it is not mine to know. Love and family life is really an affirmation of who we are rather than what we do, because we cannot always know what we do. In this absolutely astounding sentence from Gilead, the novel, the dying minister John Ames says to his son, it's your existence I love you for mainly. It's your existence I love you for mainly. Not your intelligence. Not my child is on the honor roll, da, 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 whatever school. Not how proud the son makes the father. Not even how much they are alike. But his very existence is why he loves his son. It is this affirmation that is an attitude that we can show in a practice that says that regardless of what we do, we are still worthy of being loved. Just be and know that I love you. I remember a story from a former congregant of mine, and I'm going to close after this. A former congregant of mine who had a long, long, tough time in saying goodbye to her mother, with whom she had a somewhat difficult relationship because the mother was dying of Alzheimer's. And if you've ever been near or loved someone who had Alzheimer's, you know that it is a long and terrible way to say goodbye. And this was particularly, particularly rough on both of them. It was a brutal slog, I have to be honest with you. And after all the fear and all the fighting, because she was losing her mind, and because she was losing her mind, she was losing herself as well. After all that had passed and the terror was done, all that this woman's mother had was her mere existence left. 
and my former congregant honored it. At the nursing home where her mother was spending her last days, she would go there, and she knew it was well past the time in which she could learn anything more about who her mother was or what their relationship might be. And she would get into bed with her mother, and she would brush her hair, and she would wipe her forehead, and she would cradle her. She would just hold her and sing to her, and this calmed her mother. And she thought perhaps in some ways this is just as she did for me when I was a baby many years ago. Did her mother know this? Did she know it was her daughter? No. But did she know this? That she, even if she didn't know who she was, that she was loved. Yes, she did. Her last memory, at that point you even couldn't call it a memory. Her last experience in this life was that she was loved and she was held. That she was loved and she was held. Imagine that. When there are no more memories to have and there's nothing to do and nothing to be, that even this loss, even this loss can be an opening point for a deeper love. A kind of love that goes where our knowledge perhaps never will and never can, but at least not from this perspective, into what we don't know, but not from the perspective we have right now. The answer to how is yes in loving. Like at the end of Ulysses, James Joyce's wonderful novel, which, by the way, I'll raise my hand, I didn't know what the hell was going on in it most of the time. Yes, the greatest novel in the English language, etc., etc. But I had to read and reread and reread all the time to understand what was going on. But those last words of Leopold Bloom's wife, Molly Bloom, in their embrace. Yes, I said, yes, I will, yes. The last words of this incredible novel. Yes, I said, yes, I will, yes. And so when we come to the conclusion of who we are, to the ends of ourselves, and there's nothing more to be done, and there's nothing more to be gained, and there's nothing more that we can do, and there is nothing more that we can learn, it is love. It is love that sees us across into whatever might come next. And it is love that sees us home. Amen. May you live in blessing.